Hello, welcome back to a new episode of For the Love of Weather podcast, where we discuss all things weather and how they can impact our daily lives. We hope, like always, that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. My name is Gemma. Hello, and my name is Ashling, and today we have Dr. Rosie Oaks. She's an international climate service scientist at the Met Office, focuses on making the outputs from climate models understandable accessible to people from around the world so they can be used to help them make informed decisions about the climate it's a pretty heavy duty role you've got there Rosie welcome to the podcast thank you very much for having me along it's great to be here so Rosie we always ask our our guests this but at what point in your life where was that first little spark of you thinking I'm going to go and be a climate scientist or I love the weather or like where was that first spark that kind of led you to all those decisions that you've ended up becoming a doctor? For me, I started as a geologist, so a lover of rocks. And it was during a trip to the Lake District um, up in Northern England. So I'm from um, up north. So we went there on a geography school trip and we'd seen all these diagrams of glacial features in the textbooks. And then I looked at like the actual mountains around me and I was like, oh, it looks the same as the textbook, which, I mean, I was also studying chemistry and I never was like, oh, great, a molecule. So (laughs) it was like, I could finally see science in real life. And then I was obsessed. Like every mountain I saw, every, you know, hill, I was like, how did that form? When did that get there? How did that get there? I think I was quite irritating, actually. I don't think my parents enjoyed that phase of questioning in my life. So yeah, I started as a geologist And then at university, ended up studying kind of the global climate system through time. So over hundreds of millions of years and then kind of came back to the modern day during my PhD. So I think it's fascinating how all the systems in the world are connected. And I wanted to understand, okay, well, how do big changes like, like maybe the tectonic plates moving? How does that affect ocean chemistry, the things that live in the ocean? and how all the system system works together. So yeah, I was kind of a big earth system thinker. That's how mm. I got into this. That's definitely like more of a, a larger scale way of looking at the world. So you're into the macro of the world. Although it's kind of crazy actually, because you know, where does everything start and end and start and finish? I guess that that's the question that everybody well, everyone becomes an expert in something, don't you? Where do, where do things start and where do things finish? But just briefly, while we were chatting before here, you've actually had, you're, not all of your journey or your studies have been in the UK. Can tell us a little bit about how you've got to where you were going? Yeah, so uh, I, thinking back, it seems like quite a random path, but I swear there was logic in my decision making. So I went to Edinburgh University for my undergraduate and I did physical geography and geology. And that's because I loved the physical geography at school. But I was also a big science nerd. Like I said, I did chemistry and biology. And my teachers were like, you might like the geology because it's a bit more scientific. So I went to Edinburgh because it's a great city. And in the middle of the city, there's a castle built on a plug of an ancient volcano. So it seems like a pretty badass place to study. <laughs> I did not know that. Oh my god! I didn't know that either. Like no. I know that I know the castle. I've been there. I didn't yeah. realize that. Oh, okay. Wow. That's so, so awesome. Yeah, Edinburgh, great place. So, the volcanoes I think are from about three hundred million years ago, and then you can imagine if the magma goes up 
through the vent of the center of the volcano. I'm showing people now, but it's a podcast that they can't see. <laughs> um, and it just cools there and turns into really hard rock. So then you've got that. And then over time, the sides of that volcano erode away. And actually in Edinburgh, you can really see signs of the last glaciation. So the glacier actually came through Edinburgh and it couldn't get past that plug of volcanic material. And so it's split around the side. And so if you go to Edinburgh, the castle is at the top of the hill, which is the plug of the volcano. And then there's that tail behind it. And that's where the glacier was split around the castle. And then it came back together after that. So there's all these signs of geology. Fascinating. That's so awesome. I need to go back to Edinburgh now and look at it in a different light. You know, it's funny when I was um, in school, I loved geography. I absolutely loved it. And it was partly for the same reason, probably not on the same weather was more kind of my thing, but like the, like an oxbow lake, uh, meanders, um, fluvial deposits, like, oh my God, my imagination. I was the exact same. I absolutely loved connecting the two. But, you know, God, when I was in school, I really just wasn't pushed into science. I should have been pushed earlier. But anyway, um, I, I digress and I shall move on. So you got your degree. Oh, and sorry. Yes. Then... And as part of that, I went on international exchange in my third year to the University of Toronto, pretty much because they told us we could go anywhere in the world. And I was like, well, I only speak English. So that's going to be limiting. So it was kind of America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And I'd never lived away further than Edinburgh before. And so I thought, America, Canada is probably better. And I'd never been to Canada. So I was like, great, Canada. So I went to Toronto for a year and absolutely loved it. You're just studying geology in a slightly different way with different people in a new region. So the rocks are different, obviously, for a rock nerd. Very exciting. And then I came back to Edinburgh and finished my undergraduate degree and I just enjoyed the research for my thesis so much that I was like I want to do more research but in the UK you have to pay for a master's degree whereas in Canada they pay you a salary and they pay your tuition so um, the professor I'd worked with during my undergraduate I emailed him to be like I'm gonna have to take some time off save money and do a master's and he was like well if you come to Canada we'll pay for you to do it and We'll give you a salary and I was like okay see you in <laughs> September so I moved to Canada and I studied how ocean chemistry had changed a hundred million years ago during a time called the Cretaceous and th- it's just such a cool time um, it's much warmer than today CO2 is maybe four or five times higher than today and the Atlantic Ocean is just opening up and you have all of these shallow seas And there are these events where you just have a lot of organic material that gets deposited um, in the rock record and they're not, well, there's different mechanisms for why that might have happened. So I studied the role of phosphorus in the oceans in causing these um, organic matter deposits. So quite, uh, quite random, I guess, in hindsight, but it's a really fascinating time of Earth's history and it is used as an analog because it's a high CO2 world. People use it to help understand the climate of today tell us more about um the cretaceous period so first of all how on earth do you know what happens then and yeah. why is it important yeah so that's a really good question so for my master's research we used ocean sediments so you can imagine in the ocean today 
the little bits of plankton that fall through the ocean to the bottom. And about 1% of the plankton that fall through the ocean make it to the bottom without getting recycled or you know eaten by something else on the way down. And about 1% of those make it into the rock record. So you're looking at this kind of fragment of what happened. But you can imagine those layers just build up over time, over hundreds and millions of years, they stack up. So then you go out to the ocean with a big drill ship and you just drill a core through the ocean sediment, pull it back up. And then you can almost walk back through history and look at what happened. And you can do it by looking at the actual organisms that are in the rock, the tiny bits of plankton, who's there and what conditions did they live in? And then you can measure the chemistry of those shells. So things like oxygen isotopes, which are back to the chemistry molecules nightmare. I thought I got away from that. Um, but they can tell you a story about how much ice there was in the world and salinity of oceans. So they've worked out these really cool ways. They call them proxies. So you measure kind of a chemical element in the plankton shell. And then that can tell you something about what the world was like in the past. And if you combine all these different records, so they look at things like leaf waxes as well, which are preserved in the sediment. And if you combine all of those together, you can pull together a story about what the world was like at that time. I'm just so like, how do you even know how much to sample? How do you know it's representative? Like, I understand the drilling, because that's kind of like, I guess it's exactly like ice, right? You're just drilling through a different floor bed. But how, you know, how much of these samples are around? How long does it take to put these records together? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we use... Um, we use kind of past studies to tell us like how much you need, but you order it per cubic centimeter from the wow. ocean drilling program. So you'll say, I need two cubic centimeters to do my analysis. But obviously if I want two cubic centimeters and you want two cubic centimeters and Gemma wants two cubic centimeters, like then we use the whole core. And then if in five years, someone else is like, oh, please, may I have some? Actually, no, we've already melted it all or, or we dropped some on the lab floor, you know. So they try and mm. um, they cut the core, core in half and they just use half for sampling and the half for archive, which people can come back to later on. And then they have what they call sample parties where you all go and you put stickers on where you want on the core and then you're like, take your little sample. So I actually used cores that had been drilled I think probably 20 or 30 years before I did my master's. So it was fine. I wasn't fighting anybody for the material. But some of the new cores, like they just drilled uh, the Chicxulub crater off Mexico a few years ago to look at. Um, that's where the asteroid hit that killed the dinos. So they wanted to understand what happened, you know, day one after the asteroid hit. What happened month one, year one and it's hard because obviously all those sediments get kind of thrown up into the ocean and they take a while to settle out but getting sediments from that core everybody wanted them because it's such a cool place to study this and so I think there's probably a lot more discussions that go on like how often do you sample like every 10 centimeters every 50 centimeters you know that could be hundreds of thousands of years between those mm. samples and so yeah it's trying to work out what frequency so what why why do we care what's the why is this important yeah so obviously what we're doing today to the climate we as humans by emitting carbon dioxide 
we're altering the climate system and kind of conducting an experiment. What happens when you pump a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere? And one of the ways that we can understand how the system might react to this is understanding how climate has changed in the past on these really long timescales that we can't experiment with in a lab, for example. So the advantage of looking at paleoclimate is that you start, which is the understanding the climate of the past, that's what paleoclimate is, is that you can look at how changes in Earth's system have impacted things like ocean chemistry, temperature, precipitation patterns before, and that can help you understand the large scale mechanisms of the Earth's climate. And obviously that is what we need to understand to go into the climate models of today to understand what might happen with our future climate. So it is a really big component and it is in um, like the most recent climate report from the International Panel on Climate Change. It includes information about paleoclimate all the way from kind of the ice records that you were talking about all the way back through these plankton records to understand how does our earth system work. I'm just fascinated. I'm, I'm actually like, so, so normally if I'm on a podcast, I could see Gemma's eyes like, just <laughs> like, oh God, I'm going to go and read loads more about this. And I'm like, that was really interesting, but I have to go to sleep. I'm totally going to go and read more on this. This is just so fascinating. I touched on a bit of this at uni, um, a little bit, but hearing you talk about it, I just think, gosh, there's so much more to learn. It's so interesting. And I'm just sat here thinking, oh my gosh, what book can I read? Where can I know, I me too. Information because it's I need really to cool. <laughs> when are we likely to get like results from the, 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 I want to say dig, the core samples in Mexico? Oh, they're out already. Oh, wow. What do so, they tell us? Well, I need to check in with my friend. We'll put some links in the in the notes so people can read more. But um, yeah. I think they were talking about there's evidence for wildfires um, kind of right after the impact. So you can track wildfires because they make these kind of ringed um, compounds, like they're organic compounds. You can imagine from like charcoal type thing, but they're called polyaromatic hydrocarbons and they make these little rings. And so they're really resilient in the rock record. And so they think that right after the uh, asteroid hit, that there were these big wildfires after that. And then there are studies that look at, okay, you look at Chicxulub crater, which is in Mexico, like the point of impact, but you can also look at how plankton communities reacted where the asteroid hit, but also in the Northern hemisphere and in the Southern hemisphere. And you can build this kind of global picture of how long did it take these plankton communities to respond because that they're like the first ones that will come back, obviously. So yeah, the data are published um, and I will send you some papers. I don't want to be read. I really want to read. This is so, it's so interesting. No, it's fascinating. And also your Twitter no. feed, your Twitter feed is really starting to make sense now. <laughs> <laughs> I was researching you. I was like, there's all, you're like, there's, a, you know, be, beautiful collaborations and you like love to promote lots of really good STEM stuff and everything. And then it's like, what is all of this stuff about plankton? <laughs> do love plankton (laughs) totally totally adding that to my hashtag of things that I search for that is brilliant absolutely brilliant can you tell us a little bit about your current role then at the Met Office and what that involves yeah so currently I work at the Met Office as an international climate services scientist which is a bit of a mouthful but essentially 
one of the big things that the Met Office does, it obviously does the weather forecast and trains weather forecasters, as you two know, but we also run big global climate models to try and understand what the Earth's future might look like, depending on what humans do with carbon emissions and how the Earth system will respond. But these files are absolutely gigantic, right? And if I said to you, oh, do you want to know what's going to happen in the future? Let me just give you this giant climate model. Like at first, it'd probably break your computer. And then like you wouldn't know what to do with the data. It's not super helpful to get a gigantic data file. So what our team do is we work with people around the world to understand, okay, what decisions are you making? You know, what are you planning for, for the future? And how can we give you climate information that is going to be useful and usable so that you can actually use it to inform your decisions rather than um, just knowing that climate change is a thing that you have to worry about, but not knowing what to do about it. So I really work now at that interface between the scientists who are doing the coding and the research and understanding how the climate system works and real people on the ground who need to prepare for the future climate you know, they're going to be impacted by future climate, but how can they prepare to lower the impact? Through your work, in what ways have you been able to help people put things in place for them to maybe make those climate-based decisions? Yeah, so one example of a project is I'm working in Nepal right now as part of a program called Asia Regional Resilience to a Changing Climate. And we're working on understanding how extreme rainfall events will impact the hydropower sector. So this is really important in Nepal because they wanna become energy self-sufficient. So right now they import a lot of energy from India and in the future they wanna be able to generate their own electricity. And as you know, Nepal is also in the Himalayas. So they have a lot of rain and a lot of capacity to generate electricity that way. So they want to expand their hydropower but obviously hydropower is uh, impacted by rainfall. And if they have too much rainfall, it can damage the hydropower plants. And really it can cause like loss of life downstream. If one of those hydropower plants breaks or one of the, let's say the wall of the hydropower plant is broken, then it can cause huge flooding downstream and danger to people. And even if it doesn't break, when you have those really high flows, the rivers carry so much sediment. So you can imagine they're like got massive boulders in there and that can destroy the turbines and then you can't generate electricity. So we've been working with people both from government who issue the licenses for where they build hydropower plants and people from private industry to say, okay, well, what decisions are you currently making? How are you preparing for future climate? And sometimes people say, well, we know it might get worse, so we just add 10% to all our calculations. But what we want to do is provide them with actual information based on the climate models that can help them make those decisions. So you you see so you've mentioned quite a few international places. Do you, I guess, as a scientist and as a human of this lovely earth, do you feel optimistic about what we're doing to work towards more energy efficient futures? So in terms of the change that we're seeing in the world right now, I do think there's an increased awareness of climate change and what we need to do to combat it. So reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. So I think the knowledge is out there now. So that makes me feel hopeful. I think the thing that scares me is the rate of change that is necessary 
to reduce the impacts and especially in you know some of these countries like in Nepal obviously they're really impacted by the monsoon and that is you know predictably mm. affected by increased global temperatures and I know we've had people also working in Bangladesh and the tropical cyclone intensity and frequency is predicted to be impacted by climate change so we can see where the impacts are going to be worse and they're projected to be much worse at two degrees C of warming than 1.5 degrees C of warming. So it's like, I think for me, being a climate scientist, you see these numbers every day and you just think we need to do something right now, but we, we know what we need to do. So that's really positive. Like, okay, well, we know what's causing the warming. It's the increased CO2. So if we don't put the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which comes from driving your cars and, uh, using gas and stuff, then you don't get the warming. And it's it's so simple. Like that's one of the nice things about climate science. It's complicated understanding the global climate system, but it's really simple, that link between temperature and CO2. So that mm. gives me hope that we know what to do. But I do worry mm. that we're maybe not hustling as fast as we should. I think um, just for the benefit of like people, you know, listening to the podcast. So we know in the past we've had CO2 at really high levels um I don't has it have they been much higher than now over 400 is that yeah so I, I think in the Cretaceous which is one of my faves as you know uh there are projections that it was up to a thousand parts per million so so what is the difference between what's happening now and what happened then what's the main difference between that so when people um the the normal kind of um I guess the line of questioning is well it's been warmer in the past in our climate so what's the main difference yeah, so in the past, it has been warmer and CO2 has been higher. But the difference is the rate of warming. So there's an event in the fossil record, which is the fastest rate of warming we see. It happened 56 million years ago. And in the rock record, it looks like instant. And we think that the warming that we're seeing today is more than 10 times faster than that event. And that's the fastest we've ever seen in the fossil record. So in some ways, the fossil record can tell us about what future climate might look like. But the experiment that we're conducting by adding all of this carbon dioxide to the atmosphere, it's so much faster than we have ever seen before. And mm. that's why it's scary. And that's why we're panicking. So the Earth system just doesn't have time to stabilize because we're adding it at such a rapid rate. It's really profound, isn't it? Every time I hear that message, I'm just like, shit. And, and obviously that's the one big argument. This is just an aside that I get all the time in and like, oh, this is a climate hoax and all that it just drives me nuts, you know. But also it is quite terrifying to think, yeah, okay, we know that the earth can handle a lot, but not at the rate that we're, you know, we can all run a marathon, but we can't necessarily run one tomorrow, but we could run one if we trained, you know. <laughs> From one tomorrow at five minute mile pace. Yeah. The way you you worded it as well as in the experiment that we are doing with the climate. I've never really heard about anyone expressing it in that way. Mm. And it's true. We are we're just pumping all this carbon dioxide out and we are experimenting to see well, what will happen to our climate. Is that um, like language used within the climate science community? Um, maybe, definitely in conversation, if not in publications. I don't know if it's official language, but 
I think as scientists, you're always thinking about what are the variables? What are we changing? Mm -hmm. And yeah, in this modern day experiment, we are just really increasing the CO2. And the kind of crazy thing is we already know what might happen because we understand Mm -hmm. that if you increase the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you increase global temperature. And so it is an experiment, but we actually would be great if we don't conduct it. Like if you say, Rosie, we can end this experiment tomorrow. I'd be like, great. Thanks guys. This is really appreciated. Let's keep the carbon in the ground where it's supposed to be, where the earth knows what to do with it and a nice natural, natural balance. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, I mean, in the same vein, like I say, I think that really can give people hope that you can take climate action. And every time you decide not to burn fossil fuels and put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you are limiting global warming. Like it's that linked. Mm -hmm. So every time you ride your bike to work or every time you buy local food instead of ones that have been flown from miles away, you are reducing global warming. So mm. well, you're yeah, limiting that impact that would have happened if you'd driven or that is such a lovely message. I'm going to um I'm gonna remember that and take it forward. I often get asked that, what can I do? And it feels like such a big question. And we've discussed it a couple of times on the podcast between ourselves actually, seeing as myself and Gemma are nonstop weather, something or other chatting about climate. Um, is yeah every time you make one decision that's a decision that we haven't put carbon or you haven't taken carbon out of the where it's supposed to be and put it you know back into the atmosphere I have a question for you it's something that I've been seeing a bit more recently is the word maladaptation and it's something that I'd never really thought about and it's when you put something in place that you think will actually help but actually there's negative impacts that it has and the one that I've seen is putting up a seawall helps with the flooding but then it also has an impact a negative impact on like the biodiversity and stuff is that something else that I mean I'd never really really heard that term that much until quite recently is that something else that you talk about you take into account when you're making your decisions and helping people out with the decisions that they're making so maladaptation is a really important thing to consider and like you say I think nobody's intentionally making things worse people Mm. are trying to do the right thing but if you don't think about all of the different parts of it maybe you make things worse an example that I read was let's say um, there's an old wooden bridge and it's really rickety and it goes over a river that floods so when it's flooding people don't go over the rickety bridge and then they decide oh don't worry we'll replace it with a shiny bridge so in comes the shiny bridge and now when the river's flooding, people go over it because they think, oh, we've got this great new bridge. It's going to be it's going to be awesome. But actually, that bridge wasn't built to the right levels. And so the bridge fails and people have to fall in the river or pass away. So actually, that's maladaptation because previously people wouldn't have gone over the rickety bridge in the flood because they already knew that bridge isn't good to cross during a flood because you put something in place that you say is safe more people put themselves in harm's way and then they're impacted by that hazard whereas Mm. previously they wouldn't have been so it's definitely a really important thing to consider and I think this is where as climate scientists and I assume you do the same stuff in weather we've started to realize that we need input from social scientists and behavioral scientists and it's not just about the science like I say you know we've we've worked out pretty well how the climate system works and what's going to happen in the future but we don't understand how people are going to make decisions or how people are going to respond. And I think 
that's really important. And I think actually climate scientists probably have a lot to learn from weather scientists on this. It must be also about asking local people as well, because they've got the knowledge there. They know that like the person they would have known, well, don't build the bridge because actually that's not fit for purpose. It wasn't supposed to be driven over during flooding. So actually talking to people in the regions and saying to them, well, getting their input as well must be absolutely vital in these situations. Yeah. And again, I think that's something that historically has been less valued, you know, incorporating that local and indigenous knowledge. And then they might say, oh, well, we know that when clouds come over that mountain, then that means that it's going to be particularly bad. And that kind of local knowledge you can't get in a climate model. You know, the climate models that we run, each box of the climate model, because it's just like a big old grid, is maybe 25 kilometers Mm -hmm. in a a low resolution, like in a, a higher resolution model. And that can't capture the cloud over that mountain over mm-hmm. there. You you just can't get that detail. It's also, it's really, it's a, for me, um, a really interesting conversation that I'm having more and more as well. I think even in my lifetime, you know, the idea of a scientist was somebody who like nerded away and like wrote academic papers and was taught, you know, not to have an opinion because you're running this idea of an experiment you're looking at data you're trying to look at it unbiased and therefore we're not actually used to voicing out our concerns and what we see so that bridge that gap between like you say social science science communication is just becoming so important to not be afraid to be outspoken about the work that you're on for fear of seeming biased But when you're an expert in something and you see it again and again and again and again and again, like a medical expert in something and you're like, hang on a second, actually there's a pattern to this. Each of these experiments I'm looking at with open eyes and like, you know, and actually you have to be quite brave as a scientist because as a scientist, that's maybe not your natural, if you're into science and into detail and into data, it's maybe not the most natural thing for you to be very outspoken with an opinion on top of your science. Yeah, and I think that's what we try and do. You know, the role of the climate services is to be that in between. So we bring that expert climate knowledge. You know, we have that strong foundation in climate science, but equally we can bring in these other data sets. We know that climate science doesn't operate in a vacuum. You know, we need the social science. We need the economics and the politics and all of that has to come together in it is messy and then somebody has to make a decision based on all of those things. So I think that's really where the skill comes in, in the people in our team is, you know, having that technical background, but also understanding that there are a lot of other aspects that, that influence people. And we, we do still have a lot to learn and we openly admit that. So we need to use social scientists, economic people, everybody. We need everybody to, to tackle climate change and we need all the opinions. They really matter. Yeah, here, 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 here. Um, Gemma, time is whizzing away. Shall we go on, move on to the get to know me round? Yeah, definitely. So, with our get to know me round, we always like to start by asking, "What is your favourite season?" Oh, spring. I love spring. <gasps> like right now, Rosie, we're meant to be best friends. I know. Yes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I just love that everything comes back to life again, you know, after Mm. the dark and the cold of the winter. And definitely when I lived in the US, the grass even goes brown and you think, is anything ever going to come back to life again? And then 
you see the little daffodils and snowdrops coming through and you're like, oh, yes, things are alive. It gives you hope. So I'm a yeah, spring person. Do you have a favorite cloud? Oh, I'm testing my cloud knowledge. Do I have a favorite cloud? Um, I quite like, I don't know the name of them. You have to correct me, but the giant clouds like this that have like the, the anvil top cumulus, cumulus clouds yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're pretty cool because it means something's gonna happen and that's kind of exciting <laughs> yeah yeah very good one but actually. like a big scary one yeah snow yes or no yes i like snow i think living in the states there's different types of snow right if, if it really mm. snows and you can do fun things like cross-country skiing after work that was always a good day but like the rubbishy snow that's gonna go slushy and is not fun for cycling to work. Not into that. So wet real, snow. Real snow. Yeah. No wet snow. Is a no. Is a no. Yeah. <laughs> we always think the standard weather forecaster answer is, um, yes, I love snow if I'm not working. Yeah. If I'm working, <laughs> I don't want don't snow. Want snow. <laughs> it's like that's zero bad, zero yeah. point one degree is the difference between that snowing and sleeting. No thanks. True. Yeah, I've never had to deal with it from a work point of view. Yeah. I'm getting yeah. to work, so I'm just in it for the playing in the snow situation. Yeah. <laughs> tea or coffee? Tea. Big tea drinker. Jammy Dodgers or Jaffa cakes? Oh, Jaffa cakes. Yeah, I couldn't get them in America and I always made my parents bring them when they came out. And yeah, then you're like, I want to share them with my friends, but... But I don't really. No. (laughs) (laughs) Sunset or sunrise? Uh, Sunrise. It's the hope thing again. It's like Mm. new day, start again. Love it. If you were a fruit or vegetable, what would you be? Oh, (laughs) that's quite a hard one. surprisingly people come up with an answer (laughs) um do you just pick your favorite uh um, i think the the go-to is to pick your favorite that was that's a lot of people's initial and then i think once they think about it then they're like oh actually no i think i'm a bit more like yeah (laughs) like this one actually um well my favorites are cherry tomatoes so i would say cherry tomato they're quite versatile you know you can eat them cold Sweet. you can roast them put them in a sauce there you go bit of everything adaptable yeah. <laughs> and you're the first person to say that as well oh, yes first cherry tomato what are the most <laughs> popular ones i don't know what are you t- Every uh, honestly, like so many different things like Pears, um, sweet potato strawberry strawberry yeah um, um Someone say squash. I think someone said yeah. squash before. Yeah. yeah. People identify with fruits and vegetables <laughs> in the most, they actually do in the most bizarre way because it doesn't take people long to actually come up with an answer. It's a great question. <laughs> yeah. Because initially they're like, oh, that's random. But then everyone comes up with an answer yeah, yeah. almost yeah. instantaneously. And, and I for think... a reason, you know. <laughs> do you have a hidden talent? Um, do I have a hidden talent? Uh, I can juggle yeah oh, that's cool very exciting I don't, I don't know if i can demo right now probably won't go well um i, I think that's probably that's probably about the limit of my talents i think <laughs> that's pretty cool of, yeah we used to do a bit of juggling i can't juggle at all but um a collie used, used to be able to juggle he used to keep us entertained on night shifts on really quiet night shifts <laughs> he'd just start doing some juggling it was brilliant <laughs> also Gemma, your hidden talent is twirling Oh yeah, I could do batons one. So I can juggle a couple oh. of batons. Mm-hmm. But I can't juggle. That's actually quite weird. I can't juggle. 
I bet you could if you get oh, your night shift friend to teach you. I know. I need to. I need to. I think it's the concentration. Break. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe I will. I'll I'll grab some oranges after this and I'll give it a go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you can invite anybody to dinner, they can be anyone at all from any historical time frame. They can also be a fictional character if you prefer. Who would you invite? Um, I think I would want to talk to some of the amazing female scientists who were kind of pioneering before their time. So Mary Anning would love to chat with her. So she was a fossil hunter in Lyme Regis region and she found lots of um yeah ammonites and also uh not not dinosaurs but um uh, marine reptiles there we go brain slow and then she sold them to fossil collectors and then they said that they found them so that makes me extremely mad so I would invite Mary Anning and then if I'm allowed a second guest my other person is Marie Tharp so she uh, essentially discovered the idea that there was a mid-ocean ridge and that the plates were spreading the tectonic plates were spreading but they wouldn't let her go on a ship because they said it was bad luck that a woman would go on a ship and this was like relatively recently like I think the 1950s and she still discovered the mid-ocean ridge and the seafloor spreading so I'd love to talk to both of them because I feel like they just came before their time and I'd like to tell them how much we appreciate all that hard work and that women in science have followed them ever since yeah amazing we have to do some research as well because I hadn't heard of that second lady and Mm. I'm a little bit annoyed with myself that I'd I'd never heard of her so I'm gonna go and google it after this She, she sounds awesome yeah she's super cool fingers for toes or toes for fingers okay wait fingers for toes oh fingers for toes yeah do you still get fingers on your fingers yeah 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 oh yeah then you could do loads of stuff that'd be great your reaction then is the reaction that we get from everybody actually (laughs) (laughs) you'd have to get some weird shoes i guess i don't know what that would i don't know how that would go down but would you guess? You could make those money, but you could just invent the shoes that had fingers. Or like, then... you know the the runners. Make loads of money from it. The running shoes that have that have the toes, separate toes. Mm. Yeah, it could work out yeah. just fine. Good pair of gloves, you know. But say, put a pair of gloves on your hands, mm. <laughs> on your feet, even on your, feet, on your yeah, hands, your hand feet. feet. <laughs> <laughs> and the final question that we like to ask everybody is. One thing that you wish everybody knew about the climate or climate change? The one thing I wish everybody knew is that there is this very simple link between increased carbon dioxide and increased temperature. And if you stop putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, you remove that temperature rise that would have happened if you put it in. So we can take action. The climate system is complex, but that is very simple. So that's the take home. I guess the other thing is that I think everybody is capable of understanding climate change and I will do my very best to explain it to anybody who ever wants to talk about it. So that's the other take-home message. If you want to understand climate change, you 100% can. So keep trying. I like that. I like that a lot. So Rosie, we love to ask our guests to impart a little bit of weather wisdom. In this case, it's going to be some climate wisdom. So can you tell us what net zero means? 
Yeah, good question. So you might have heard a lot of people talking about net zero recently, especially around COP26. So net zero just talks about the kind of sum of carbon emissions. So like we talked about, when you drive your car, you emit carbon dioxide. And when you burn gas, you emit carbon dioxide. But there are other things that draw carbon dioxide down. So like trees, for example, they take in carbon dioxide and incorporate it into their bark. So net zero just means that all of the emissions are equal to all of the drawdowns. So overall, it's zero. And the reason that we're aiming for this rather than zero emissions is because there are some things that we are still going to need fossil fuels for. It's going to be really tricky to move away from that in some areas. And so then we have to kind of counteract that with more things that will draw down carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So overall, the net would be zero emissions, but we'll still be emitting things, just also drawing the carbon down again. Love it. Thank you. That's just a little little encyclopedia this evening, haven't we? <laughs> of all sorts of stuff. I feel like I've been like totally informed on like basically so many things like chemistry, tectonic plates. <laughs> the paleoclimate stuff, that is stuff that I am now heading yeah, know. off I'm to like, research. Yeah. That's so interesting. Stuff yeah, that you just I just never I haven't really thought about that since like uni time, but that's yeah and there's Thank such you a so lot much. of earth's history like there's a huge history of the earth to figure out so yeah definitely a lot of questions i need to head to edinburgh as well now and check out the volcano plug and look at it in a completely different way i'm actually like what i want to see is the actual the actual data sets like the actual ones and how scientists process them i just it just blows my mind and the coding for it Mm. like who does that who does that it's just insane it's just insane thank you so much rosie for today it's been absolutely brilliant we've loved it and if you've been listening and you've loved this episode as much as we have and you want to go and research some more about paleo uh, climate where can people find your work uh, rosie and follow along Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Rosie Oaks and I'm also on Instagram at Dr. Rosie Oaks. And I will share some resources with both of you so that we can uh, make sure the listeners can find more information. Brilliant. You will definitely share that with everyone. Also, if we could ask everyone to please subscribe, rate and review the podcast, we we really, really would appreciate that. If you want to follow along uh, with us on Instagram and TikTok, we are For the Love of Weather. And on Twitter, we are the number four Love of Weather. And as always, me and Ash just hope that you leave this episode loving the weather just that little bit more. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye-bye.